if you guys have been following along with us in the book of Matthew, you've heard a lot of talk about the kingdom. That's a big emphasis Matthew has among the other gospel writers is highlighting Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. And just to recap that a little bit, um, the kingdom of God is the idea of the God ruling and reigning, his will, his perfect will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so Jesus is talking a lot about that, about how the kingdom of God um, is coming and indeed has come with his arrival. And if you've been here a little more recently, um, the last six or seven chapters, there's been a, a particular amount of emphasis on the value system of that kingdom being turned on its head, right? That in, this, in God's kingdom, and God's economy, the value system is completely backwards of that which the culture sees values, how they deem success, how they deem um, what's to be aspired to or what's to be sought after, who and what is important. All those systems of value the culture has, Jesus completely flips them and turns them upside down. Just last week, we had this um, incident where the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and she says, hey, say that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and your left hand in your kingdom. I want my two sons to be the greatest. And what does Jesus do? He takes her question and he turns it on its head. He said, hey, if you want to be great, that's fine. But in my kingdom, those who are considered great are not those in a position of prominence necessarily, but those who are willing to serve. And that many who are seen as first in this world's economy and in our world system of values, those who we consider at the top to be the best, to be first, many of those in my kingdom will actually be last. And the last in the world's eyes, in my kingdom, will often be first. He takes the natural value system and structure and thought of the day and he flips it. Just before that, Jesus told the parable about the labors of the vineyard. Um, and Trent walked us through that passage about the idea that there were these guys who were hired to go work in a vineyard, and then halfway through the day, the, the, the guy who owned the vineyard went out and hired some more guys, but then paid them all the same. And of course, the guys who worked longer were upset, like, what is this? You know, how come they're getting paid the same as us? And, and the point of that parable was essentially that, like, the parable was that Anyone who's a participant in God's kingdom is there not by their own work or merit or efforts, but by the graciousness and generosity of God. Whether you've been working for one hour or six or eight or whatever, you're only there by the graciousness and the generosity of God. That the idea there is that the um, kingdom of heaven is not built on merit, but on grace. And then we saw this passage of the rich young ruler, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking if, like, if I'm Jesus, if I'm leading this new revolution, right, and a rich young ruler comes up to me and wants to be part of it, I'm going to say yes, right? I mean, this guy's got resources, he's got influence, he's got authority. And Jesus basically says, look, you're not willing to give that up, so sorry. And the guy walks away sad. And then just before that, you've got the story of, People bringing children to Jesus, right? Imagine Jesus is teaching with all these adults and these little kids come up and the disciples are trying to shoo them away. Get rid of these little snot-nosed kids here. They don't need to be bugging Jesus, right? He's, he's much too important for this kind of thing, for these kinds of 
of people whom our culture and our society and our value system deems unimportant and unhelpful, and Jesus says no. In fact, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you need to be more like them. He takes all of these cultural normative values and just flips them on their head. And I think what we see in this today's text at the end of Matthew chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 22 is a couple more examples of that. Jesus gives us, or Matthew rather, gives us one last example of Jesus' teaching on that before he enters into Jerusalem. So let's look at that story first, the healing of these two blind men. Now keep in mind what's going on here is Jesus and many of his followers are headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, Jesus obviously has other intentions, right? It's where he's going to lay down his life. Um, But even if you weren't going to do that, you've got a lot of people from the surrounding area all congregating in the city of Jerusalem for this big festival of Passover. As you can imagine, as Jesus is traveling from up in remote Galilee down to this epicenter of Jerusalem, the closer he gets, the bigger the crowd gets. Not just because it's people following Jesus, but it's because people are going to the Passover anyways. And so you can imagine these two blind guys, they are in this city called Jericho, which is about 18 miles from Jerusalem. So they're getting, they're getting close to Jerusalem. They're almost there. There's a big crowd. They're passing through. And these two guys who are blind and begging start crying out. Now, they've obviously heard of Jesus. Or they heard someone talking about him. They know that Jesus is somewhere in the general area, and they cry out for him to heal them. Let's look there in verse 29. It says this. Matthew 21, or sorry, 20, 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And they heard that Jesus was passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So again, what we see with these guys, they knew Jesus was coming. We don't know if they had heard of him coming a long time ago, or if they just found out, they heard his name being said a few times, and they just reacted. But at any rate, they've heard of him, and they know who he is, and they believe that he is the Lord. He is the son of David, and they address him as such. But then what happens? Well, the crowd rebukes him, right? Verse 31 says this. Sorry, let's turn the page here. Verse 31, um, the crowd responds, and they say, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So this, the scene ought to ring a bell, right? Um, people who the society deems unimportant, unuseful, unhelpful, are crying out, vying for Jesus' attention, and the crowds are trying to shoo him away. Sound familiar? It's the same thing with the kids, right? Look, Jesus doesn't have time for this kind of stuff. He's, he's an important guy. He's a, he's a rabbi. He's, he's a teacher. He has a following. Don't pester and bother him. I think Matthew puts this story in his gospel account just to give us, just before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, just one more incident to show us and remind us that the way Jesus sees and values people is very different from the way everyone else does. And what you see is everyone else projecting their own value system into Jesus's mind, right? Because they look at these blind guys and they think, well, I mean, if I were Jesus, if I were in this position, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to stop down and mess with that. I'm focused. I've got a mission. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I've got this crowd I've got to think about. I don't have time for these blind beggars. And so they project that same mentality into Jesus' mind, but again, he flips it. 
turns it upside down. You continue reading there in 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? I'm sure the answer was obvious, right? Well, we are blind, right? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So one um, commentator I was reading about this, R.T. France, had a really nice summary of this passage and this idea of Jesus turning the values on their head. Kind of a long quote, but you can follow along on the screen. It says this, that Jesus stopped among such a large crowd, such, sorry, such a large moving crowd to respond to the request of two insignificant individuals illustrates again the unconventional values of the kingdom of heaven in which the good of a little one takes precedence and in which compassion triumphs over the expectations of many. At a time when his mind might be expected to be on his imminent arrival in Jerusalem and the fate which awaited him there, Jesus still has time to notice and respond to the need of a beggar. One interesting thing about this particular account is after they're healed, they begin to follow Jesus. And this story is almost identical to a story we see of two other blind guys in Matthew chapter 9 that are crying out to Jesus to heal them. And Jesus heals them, but then he, he says to them, don't tell anyone about this and don't follow me, basically. But in this story, you don't see that at all. You see these guys pick up and follow Jesus, and there's no instruction to keep silent about it. And the reason for that is because as we read this story, when we go from chapter 20 to chapter 21, there's this big shift in the book of Matthew where most of, through, up, up through chapter 20, he's been in Galilee. It's been his ministry, his teaching. Jesus has been, for the most part, operating under the radar with some sort of, not secrecy, but not wanting to make a huge fuss about um, who he is and not wanting that to get out completely yet. But then in 21, we're going to see this major shift for the time of flying under the radar is past. And it's time for Jesus to now enter into Jerusalem and declare himself boldly and clearly to be the king and Messiah that Israel has been waiting on. So as we, as we look at that shift, there's a, there's a video. You guys, by the way, have access to this. It's on Right Now Media. All of you guys, if you're a member at Crosspoint, um, you can log into Right Now Media take advantage of any of their resources. they got a ton of cool stuff on there. One of my favorite things they do is this series called How to Read. And so it's just these videos about how to read, and then I think they have one on just about every book of the Bible. And it just kind of shows you a real uh, artistic, illustrated outline of the themes and major ideas and progression of the book. So uh, the Matthew one is really long, but we're just going to zone in on just kind of this transition between Jesus' ministry in Galilee to when he enters Jerusalem. So take a look at this. The Gospel According to Matthew In the first video, we saw how Matthew introduced Jesus as the Messiah from the line of David and as a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and also as Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. After Jesus announced and taught about the arrival of God's kingdom, and after he brought the kingdom into day-to-day life among the people of Israel, we saw that Jesus was accepted by many, but rejected by others, especially Israel's religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so the big question is, how is this conflict between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? 
The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One's made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign, it's very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet and the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws. And he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the Messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a Messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Well, Peter and the disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside-down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our value systems. So in the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant messiah, you must become a servant yourself. In the next section, we watch the two kingdoms clash, Jesus' kingdom and that of Israel's leader. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for Passover riding in on a donkey, and the crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. And Jesus immediately marches into the courtyard of the temple, and he creates this huge disruption that brings the daily sacrifices to a halt. His actions speak louder than words here. As Israel's king, Jesus was asserting his royal authority over the temple, the place where God and Israel met together. And in Jesus' view, the temple was compromised by the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. And so here he's challenging their authority, and naturally, they're deeply offended. And so they try to trap Jesus and shame him in public debate, and they fail. So they end up just determining to have him killed. I love that video because it's so clearly illustrates this idea of this clashing of two kingdoms, two systems of values, two powers that be, so to speak. And we need to see it this way as we continue to move through the book of Matthew that at this point, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem instigated a battle of kingdoms. That you had the kingdom of man, right? Where the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, had kind of set up this, this religious structure that they were kind of placeholders in until God sent the Messiah, right? Until the, the long-awaited heir of David came in to claim the throne. But then when he came, 
he was not welcome. Uh, for me, it's helpful to picture this in a, maybe a different context. Like, imagine like a Lord of the Rings or kind of like medieval type setting, right? Imagine you have this kingdom and um, the king's heir has been in exile for centuries, right? There was this royal line, there was this great throne where the king sat and ruled and he was a good king, but a lot of stuff happened and, and they've been without a king for a long time. And so instead of submitting and listening to the king, the, the people kind of set up these other leaders to kind of rule in the interim, right? That none of them were going to be the king because they weren't of the lineage, they didn't have those qualifications. Um, but you had all these little chairs surrounding the throne where guys had to kind of rule in the king's place and they're always vying for more authority or trying to get more power, trying to gain more influence, right? Trying to get a leg up on everyone else. It's this game they're playing. And, and, and then one day, unbeknownst to them, like the king's heir finally comes in to claim his throne. Well, how are they going to react? They're going to like it, right? Because for this king to come means a reversal of the power and authority structure and influence at the time. It means that they now are no longer the top dogs because the king is here and they are going to fade into the shadows and they do not like it. And that's almost exactly what we see happening here when Jesus rides in as a king into Jerusalem. And this is a what we might call a royally odd entrance, right? It's a very odd way to pronounce yourself as the king of a people, to come in in the manner in which he did. Jerusalem has such significance here. It is the city of the king. It is where a king would sit and rule and reign and reside. And for Jesus to ride into that city in this way with heralds and proclamation and palm branches is unmistakably clear. He is declaring himself to be the king of Israel coming in to claim his place and his throne. And there is indeed a clash of kingdoms as that is met with the resistance from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at that time. And, and in, this, in this entrance, you have some things you would expect, right? There's some things about how you would expect a king to come into a new city and proclaim himself to be king to claim his throne, right? You do have this procession, this this crowd of people who are heralding your coming and, and praising you, right? That, that's what's happening. You've got this group of people heralding and praising the coming king, making these proclamations. And then you've got these palm branches, right? This sign of royalty saying, this guy is the king. And then there's a lot of other elements about this that are, again, upside down from what you would expect in regards to how a king would act and how he would want to be introduced into the royal city. First of all, the crowd itself was not the kind of crowd you would expect for a king's heralds and proclamation. Um, typically, I would imagine if a king were to come into a city like that, you would want all the really important, influential people there to proclaim and witness your arrival. But instead, it's, it's basically this this crowd of normal, unimportant people, right? It's, it's the nobodies of the day who are there. We're not given any names, right, of important figures who are there to announce the arrival of King Jesus. Instead, they're probably off somewhere else, or at best, they're sitting in the back with their arms crossed and a scowl on their face because they do not like what is happening right now. 
So, so the audience, this, this uh, procession, is not what you would expect. Someone's importance in Jesus' kingdom, however, is not determined by their wealth or their power, but by whether or not they're willing to recognize their need for the king's mercy. And those who are deemed unimportant nobodies in the world's kingdom then serve as the royal procession for King Jesus. Another, another upside-down element of this procession is the mount, right? I mean, I've never been a king, but if I were, I wouldn't ride in on a donkey. This wouldn't be my first choice, right? I mean, you would expect a king to come in on some sort of noble steed, right? Some war horse or like a, a Clydesdale or something, right? Something like majestic and impressive and, and powerful, right? I mean, um, I just, again, you try, to, you try to imagine this in another context, right? And you can imagine for just a second, like a, again, like a medieval type movie. Imagine it in this room, right? So there's the center aisle and you've got all the nobles and dignitaries up here on the sides and then all along the aisle, you've got knights with their swords and shields kind of posed, right? And then, and then maybe, maybe right in the middle, you've got these people playing those really long trumpets, you know, with the banners hanging from them. And it's like you, you see all this happening, and everyone's kind of facing the front, and it's ba 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 And then everyone turns and looks to the back, and here's this. ba 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 well, you can imagine just like the, what? <laughs> like, like the letdown of this is not how it's supposed to go, right? This seems a little backwards, right? This seems a little upside down from what we're used to, what you would expect from a king's entrance. Um, I, uh, I grew up in a, a small town uh, called Panhandle. If you ever ask me where I'm from, by the way, and I say Amarillo, it's not because I'm trying to lie. It's just because I don't want to go through this whole explanation. Because normally I say Panhandle, like, oh, cool, what part of the Panhandle? I'm like, no, no. But the town is like, it's in the middle, like right in the dead center of the Panhandle region, and it's called Panhandle. And most people have never heard of that town. Um, but we're kind of a big deal in the area. Um, we're, maybe, maybe you haven't heard of Panhandle, but it's the county seat of Carson County. Okay, so yeah, it's a big deal, all right? So every year, every year there's a big 4th of July parade, and it actually is a pretty big deal. People come from all over the county to this thing, okay? It's just, it's a massive deal. So people come from all over to this 4th of July parade. It really is, it's like a big hoopla. There's like thousands of people there. It's pretty cool. It's a classic Main Street with like the red bricks, you know, starts at the city hall on one end and goes down to the courthouse on the other end. Just, just a big parade. And I don't know about you, but I love a parade. And so we're, we're, you know, they're watching this thing go by one year and always at the very end of the parade are a bunch of classic cars, Right, so you've got like these really nice um, restored, you know, like you know, um, Ford Model Ts or like you know, really old like '60s Camaros, things like that. Just really, really nice cars that you guys have put a ton of work into, and they always kind of bring up the rear. Well, one year, my buddy named Clint McMurtry decides he's going to sneak into the back of the parade at the very end when no one's looking, and he's got this clunker, man. I mean, it is just like. The most beat up, it's got, it's a Frankenstein, right? It's got like parts that it's borrowed from all kinds of different cars and year models. And it's just like, it's like eight different colors. The windshield's cracked. Some of those cars where every time you fill it up with gas, you got to add a little oil too, you know? It's not leaking oil. Like there's no puddles. It just, 
we don't know where it goes, right? But when you put gas in, you got to put a little oil in too. So he just drives that thing behind. And it just, it's so hilarious because it's just so out of place and so ridiculous looking. Now, he didn't, he didn't like get a tractor and drive that in. I mean, we got more class than that in Panhandle. Um, but uh, anybody catch that? Rock off 4th of July? Yeah. So um, he, uh, but he does this thing and it's just like, it's just so obviously out of place and ridiculous to the point that like that's the car everyone's going to remember right like you had all these you had like these 60s mustangs and all this stuff no one remembers any of that you just remember this clunker that this dude snuck in at the very end and almost imagine him making that kind of an impression right when Jesus decides of all animals he could have ridden on to ride in on this donkey um i was uh, i was studying this and um this passage and came across this quote by uh, Calvin, one of the commentators I like to read, and I cleaned it up a little for you because he uses a different word for donkey. Um, but I want to put the uh, I want to put the quote on the screen, and uh, just really captures the the idea of how oddly like ridiculous, but also amazing this this whole thing was and what it communicated about Jesus. And it says this: This would have been a ridiculous display if it had not been in accordance with the prediction of Zechariah. In order to lay claim to the honors of royalty, he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. A magnificent display, especially when the donkey was borrowed from some person, and because they had no saddle, the disciples threw their garments on it, which was a mark of disgraceful poverty. Sounds of loud and joyful welcome are heard, but from whom? from the very poorest, and from those who belong to the despised multitude. He had to exhibit some proof of his kingdom and to show that it does not resemble earthly kingdoms. So almost as if to to put a giant exclamation mark on all these teachings about how the value system is turned on its head, Jesus rides into Jerusalem for his royal procession, humble and mounted on a donkey. But what's even more unconventional than that is the means by which this king attained his victory. As odd as it was for this king to ride in on a donkey... It was even more odd the way he attained his victory because King Jesus won this battle, this clash of kingdoms that occurred when he rode in. He won the battle through his own execution. Very unconventional way to win something through your own execution. Most kings gain victory on behalf of their people by subduing other kingdoms, by often killing other kings by doing battle against the powers that be by gaining lands and resources right and 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 things to pass along to their subjects but king jesus comes in and secures for us unmatched levels of wealth and liberation not by killing but by dying in our place. Thus the kingdom of God's values are put on display as very different 
from the things valued in the world. And for us, that's a, there's so many different ways we can apply that, right? When you think about the fact that we are now subjects of this kingdom, that our, our king and his, what he values is completely backwards of what the world values. It was true when Jesus was alive then, and it's true now today. The values of his kingdom were opposed then, and they are opposed now. And we could even say it like this, that following Jesus is a constant effort to redefine our own value systems. To move away from the value systems that are held in our culture and move towards a system of values that is more akin to that of our king. As we are the, have our primary residency, not in this world, but in his kingdom. So I'm just going to look at four things real quick on what that looks like to reshape our values. And the first one is just simply how we value people, right? Do we see value in people for what they can do for us, for how useful that relationship is, for how beneficial that might be for me to spend time with this person, to get to know this person, what do they have, what can they offer, how does it benefit me to be close to them, or do we see people as having value simply because they're made in the image of God. Because that's about the only requirement Jesus had to assign value to someone, was whether or not they were made in the image of God. And if they were, he had time for them. No matter how poor or wealthy or sick or healthy, he had time for them. Number two, who do we consider to be successful? We throw that word around a lot in our society, don't we? Oh yeah, he's... That guy, he's very successful. What does that mean? Usually it means he's had a very great career path. He's gained a lot of wealth. And while that is not certainly mutual exclusive to being successful in the kingdom, we do have to ask ourselves, is our value system for what we consider successful more like that of the world around us or more like that of Jesus? Do we admire in esteem those who are ahead of us financially or those who are outdoing us in love and service to one another? Who do we admire? Who do we esteem? Who do we think, man, I want to be like that? Is that value system based on something like what the world sees of, of wealth and what they've gained and what they've accomplished? Or is it of those who have a close relationship with Jesus and are loving and serving others well? What is our greatest hope for our kids? Right? I mean, think about what do you, what do you hope and want for your kids? Is, it, is that question primarily answered through their achievements in athletics, academics, social settings? Or would you answer that question primarily that you would gladly trade all of the achievements they've had in those areas if it meant that they would know and love Jesus? Do you value that more than what they would accomplish that the world would consider success and what you should hope for your kids? What do we hope to achieve with our financial gains? 
We hope to achieve more comfort and ease for ourselves. Not that that is a bad thing. Obviously, there needs to be some of that ambition in your career, right? But are you, do you go to bed at night thinking about that or thinking about how you could then be more generous when you accomplish those goals and how that would set you up to serve and love others? I hope when I, when I go through that list, I don't know about you, but I think through the practical implications of this and how my own value system clashes with that of King Jesus. And I get a lot more sympathetic to the people who are pushing away the blind beggars and the kids because it is just so different that we just we live in this world where the value systems of our culture cut directly against the grain of the value systems of Jesus, of what is valued and esteemed in his kingdom. And, and that's, that's why we have to keep coming here every week. Right? Six days out of the week, you live in a world where the value systems are upside down from what they should be to us as residents of King Jesus' kingdom. And once a week, we come in here and go, oh yeah, that's not what's valuable. That's not what defines what's important. Jesus rode in on a donkey. Our king won victory through dying. That's where our focus should be. That should be informing and shaping what and who we value. And we need to fix our eyes on Jesus day after day, week after week, if we have any hope of living in his value structure and not being swept into the value system and structure of the world around us. Let's pray. God, that feels like a big prayer. It feels like a big prayer to ask you to make us into a people who are just living with a very different structure of values than those around us. God, I know, I know, I know for me, the only, the only hope I even have of keeping that on my mind is by remembering the example you set and who you had time for, Jesus, while you were on earth, while you were out among us. You did not seek the, the prominent and those who would be beneficial, but you sought those who saw their need for you. And God, I pray that we would strive to be that. We would strive to be a people who just sees greatness as just recognizing our need for you and drawing near to you. And that we would be defined not by seeking to outdo one another in careers and fitness and houses, but God, people who would outdo one another in love and good deeds. When we find our value in that, that is so contrary to where our minds usually are. And I pray that as we fix our eyes on you, you would, you would reshape us and reshape what we value to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Amen.